Good evening, guys, and welcome to another episode of KC Caffeine. My name is Jason, and um, today we have some special, special guests. Um, we have one whose voice we haven't heard in a while, and we have a brand new voice. Welcome to the KC Caffeine family. Um, Sarah Lynn's here. Hello, everybody. Sarah Lynn is the wife of our other co-host, um, one Miss Blue, and you know, it's one of my bestest friends in the entire world. Uh, she is a force to be reckoned with, and uh, she has strong opinions, <laughs> and you know, super smart. And uh, welcome to again, you know, welcome back. And we've missed you. Well, thank you for having me back. I missed you guys, too. I'm excited about tonight. And also, all the way <laughs> from Buffalo and parts thereof, she is a firecracker. She gets you together. Um, she keeps everyone on their toes. Uh, she is the absolutely riveting Abby. It's a lovely introduction. I like you say Buffalo with such disdain. <laughs> it's because it's I cold. Nice for you to move to Kansas City and you refuse to do so. Yeah, I like um, Buffalo. And I, I asked earlier what is keeping you in Buffalo and you said, I like Buffalo. And I said, Well, that's not what I asked you. I asked you what's keeping you there and you then said I, I like Buffalo. So, you know, clearly, you know, Buffalo wins over all of this goodness out here. Um, although, really, the weather has been kind of shitty this Awful. week. So, yeah. You know, if, if I, this would not have been the week that I would have just liked you to be here. But then I also have to remember that, like, in the summertime, it's 114 degrees. Um, so there's that. So, you know, you take the good with the bad. But uh, today's episode, uh, <laughs> it's just bad and bad. I just want to point out. <laughs> you just said we have bad weather, and then we have really hot weather, <laughs> and then we can go. Into today the was beautiful, though. Um, mm-hmm. It was sunny, sixty-seven degrees out. It was wonderful. Um, it would have been great to have that over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been it's, so now that you know we're talking about this, just a little bit. What, did you have a good weekend trip while you were here? Yeah, I did. We had a really good time. Cool. Yeah. Good. I'm glad that you enjoyed your time. Uh, I know that you have to rush back to, you know, whatever it is that you do out <laughs> in Buffalo. Speaking of what it is that you do, mm-hmm. um, brings us into our topic this week. Uh, and I want to talk about addiction. And, um, you know, I think that every, uh, you know, everybody in some way is touched by addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are... Uh, you know, you're going to be addicted to lots of different things. I think when we talk, think about addiction, we think about drugs and alcohol. Um, but, you know, you can be addicted to sweets. And you can be addicted to video games or, you know, porn. Pastries. Pastries. You know, <laughs> One of my favorites. <laughs> I do love a pastry. Um, but I wanted to bring you on for mm-hmm. this episode. Uh, first of all, tell the listeners uh, what, you're, what, some, what it is that you do. So I've worked as an addictions professional for eight years, Uh, and I've always worked in residential settings, but I've also done outpatient. So in dealing with residential, what you're um, 
that is, uh, you're dealing with somebody who's extremely ill at that point in the game. So um, a little bit of prevention just through doing outreach, but for the most part, doing um, addictions therapy. So I am a certified alcohol and substance abuse counselor, um, and I'm also a certified family interventionist. And again, a lot of my experience in residential, and then also most recently the last two years working in a medical detox. Okay. And so um, being a part of some of the healthcare reform starting in the medical detox and then um, helping people get to long-term treatment or back into outpatient. So really a wealth of knowledge in the spectrum of care. Okay, so let's yeah. let's kind of dig into one of the things that you just said. Um, you said that you know when 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 it's inpatient, then like that's when they're you know, it's things are really bad essentially. Um, that's just paraphrasing yeah, all yeah. that goodness no, that's that good. you just said. Um, but what I'm interested in is is how we let's talk a little bit about the steps of of kind of addiction mm-hmm. and, and um, where we. <laughs> I feel like you're, you're all right. Go ahead. Um, because when, like I said, when we talk about addiction and when we think about addiction, we think of you know uh, Precious's mama. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Uh-huh. Like that this this. You know, the 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 junkies and mm-hmm. you know it's but I think it's a it's a lot deeper than that and it's a lot there's a lot of times it's a lot more subtle than that. I think um, we forget about the functioning addiction right. addicts that, that are in that society are, you know, and we, yeah yeah that that can that you are able to do and and lead a, a mostly you know normal and complete life or at least you're tricking you're fooling yourself into thinking you can. and others and then all of a right. sudden. It spirals or snowballs, and then you end up in residential, and you can't figure out how you got there. Yeah. But when you look back, you see this whole trail of waste behind you, going, "Oh, this was this was a point, and this was a point, and this was a point, and this was." And it's you just see it spiraling downhill. Right. And I think a lot of times we feel like if somebody's not in residential, then oh, they're fine, they're fine, just throw a bandaid on it, they're good. And we forget that there are all these other aspects and mm-hmm. um, different things that we need to look at and you know, really pay attention to. So if you know somebody who you see these signs, you can say, hey, you know, I love you, FYI. I see this. I don't know. Do you need help? Can I help you? Yeah. And Absolutely. So kind of walk us through, and I know this is, this is going to be kind of a, a, a weird question to ask um, because I think that it's, that, the, to me, there seems like there's like it's it seems like a dumb question, but I think I in order for us to, to fully gra- grasp and, and kind of dive deep into this, like what are what what do you think are the stages of addiction? Okay. Um, well, um, so you you actually hit on a lot there. So can I like yeah, break okay, down I where I'll... I want to go? Well, yeah. no, because I think we t- Sarah talked on um, our misconceptions about addiction, mm-hmm. um, treatment what's working, and what's topsy-turvy. And then you also touched on junkie. And I know you also, you want to talk about different communities and breaking through the stereotypes. And junkie is very specific to the African-American community and extremely detrimental. Um, and that's stemming from the cocaine epidemic that we saw years ago. Yeah, the crack and so it's just interesting yeah. that your age and your demographic, you would use that terminology that's unintentionally extremely offensive and it comes from our no no I know you didn't and no no because you wanted to touch on this and I was like I don't really know if I can touch on that but it's um, I do that is very specific um, 
to that time in history and specifically crack cocaine was sold and packaged and delivered to low-income communities right. and African-American yeah. communities. communities of color. Yes. Um, so that term junkie is tossed around a lot, and it stops a lot of people from getting help. Okay. And, and it's just one of those words that we use to try and communicate to our audience that we're talking about addiction. But it, um, it absolutely shows some of the stereotypes we carry, and even our, our care, caregivers. Mm-hmm. We unintentionally carry our stereotypes based on our life experience. So that might be something you want to go back to. Um, but I just I thought that was really interesting to point out. Um, that again, here we are talking about bridging the gap and opening the conversation. And we start off instantly with a stereotype. Right. right? That's how quick, that's how ingrained it is in us. Um, but in terms of the topsy-turvy pieces of addiction, I think Sarah touched on, yeah, we are very reactive very reactive um prevention is something that we put tons and tons of money into and that's just you know stopping people from making poor decisions before they make them mm-hmm. and then we deal with the crisis but everything in between we kind of lose sight of right. and there's a lot of room for intervention especially family intervention for dialogue and um we can help people very early on when we push through our stereotypes and just talk about openly that addiction is rampant. And I right. love that you identified how um, relatable it is. People forget how easy it is to empathize. Like I always tell my parents when I'm working with them or any of the family members that I'm working with loved ones, you, um, January is the best time of year to talk about addiction because we're all looking at our failed goals. Right, everyone's resetting all of these health goals, and I want to lose weight, and I want to diet, and nobody makes the connection to you're making a big life change when right. you're setting a weight loss journey. That's what somebody with addiction is doing. They're making a big life change, and we can empathize, and we can relate, and we can really understand from that lens. So I I, I went down a little rabbit hole there, but I just I loved that spot of rabbit empathy. Where we live, it's fine. <laughs> But yeah, I just, I loved that, that, but that spot of empathy, especially when you're engaging an audience very early on in a topic that they might have, um, a lot of emotion around, right? right? We're angry, we're hurt, we're disappointed. We don't want to talk about addiction because we don't know what to do about it. And so I think grabbing the audience early and saying, this is a very relatable topic. Right. And you just have to find the life experience that you have of trying to make a tremendous life change. Because right. that's what recovery is. Well, and I think that it's it's interesting because, you know, through that, I was looking for, uh, interestingly enough, we were just talking about, you know, the the, the use of that term that I won't use. Again. You can, no, I mean, you can. It's, it's but, well, I think you should explain your history around that. Because I can under, I, as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, I totally understand why you use that term. Yeah. Right. I know. Well, it's, it's, what I think is, it's interesting is I was trying to figure out, find a, 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 a a term to use, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't want to say, you know, addicts, because I feel like, you know, it's, that's what it is, but we don't think about it in those terms. Yeah. You know, we don't think about when we're talking colloquialism and, you know, just talking with, you know, like in normal, you know, our own normal dialogue, we don't use the term mm-hmm. addicts like that. Right. So there's always a, you know, a slang term that we use. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to say crackheads because... We don't do like because you know. Why I was, like, wouldn't that's you say a, crackhead? Because I just thought that would be more <laughs> offensive than the term junkie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was like, 
you know, because crackhead definitely has a connotation. You know, it is definitely says to me when so, when I hear someone say, "Oh, I was that was a crackhead," I immediately think of you know the you know, the Dave Chappelle mm-hmm. skit. You know, I immediately go to this is so a person of color who you know is like out on the streets and and has that look where when I think that but and, and I think that where what I'm addiction you know in the in the face of addiction is so much more than that you yes. know it's a person who's you know in the business suit and goes to the nine to five every day and you know has you know makes a hundred thousand dollars a year and looks like you know a, a fine upstanding person and yeah. it also looks like the person who you know is living out you know living on the corner and living in the street it just it runs the gamut yeah i and wish so, i could remember um there was an article that i read and i wish i could remember the name of it but it was a wife of a i, think, I believe it was a lawyer or some kind of corporate exec and he overdosed mm-hmm. in a hotel room on a business trip and the last call he made was he dialed into the conference call he was supposed to be on mm-hmm. right do you know what I mean? Like, that to me is insane. I'm like, that shows <clears throat> it can be anybody doing anything. And that that's where I really got that whole, you know, we try to keep it normal. And just she had no idea. Right. And then she started going back through bank statements and started, and then she saw all of the things that she refused to see. And I think that's really heartbreaking. But it's also very helpful. Right. Because she can reach out to people who normally wouldn't listen and say, no, 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 no. My husband and I live in your neighborhood. Yeah. Right. Our children go to your school. Yeah. Like, this could be your family. I want to help you. This is what you need to look for. Yeah. Right. Addiction does not discriminate. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I didn't mean to make you feel bad about using that word. <laughs> it's it's just, it, No, it's a great <laughs> illustration about how we accidentally call this terminology to try and engage conversation right um and again keep in mind the the words that are offensive are going to be relative to your upbringing right so it was um interesting because i was running a group once and i had uh, an african-american guy 65 ish and um he referred to himself as a junkie and one of our young adult men 22 ish threw his arms up and said that is so offensive you know um, that you would, because the guy was really beating himself up. And he was like, you own that. Like, you are here working through your addiction. You're a recovering junkie. You're not a junkie. And you could tell the terminology carried very different weight. Right. Right. And so it's interesting that at your age, you're saying crackhead, for me, is so offensive. Because that's relative to your life experience. Right. And at the time, that was the offensive terminology. And so back in the 60s and 70s, junkie was the offensive terminology. So... When it comes to addiction, I'm not using this to try and get people to avoid having conversations and tiptoe, but I absolutely just want to point out how difficult it is to have conversation. And again, our most meaningful helpers um, have a lot to learn. Right. And that that's the point I was trying to illustrate and absolutely does not discriminate because we've gone to an, the other side of this now, right? So we have our, you know... Guys come in, junkie, crackhead, those are offensive terms. And now it, it almost bears uh, no stigma for our young people right. who are entering into the world of addiction. We've done such a good job of cleansing that stigma for them, for right. the users, that um, heroin is no longer taboo. 
It just is what it is. Everyone's dipping and dabbling, and it is um, your businessmen, businesswomen, you know, young affluent people. Um, that's the big thing with the non-discriminatory part of addiction nowadays. Is it doesn't bear that stigma, so we're seeing people enter into really life-threatening situations without any understanding of the consequences. So the stigma carry it, it does it can help. Right. You know, it's it's almost like we need to find this middle ground. Where we want to, to shun it, but we also want to understand it. And I think that's what you're here today is to right. talk about understanding it. So I didn't mean to make you feel bad about that. Oh, no, I'm you're sorry. fine. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so let's kind of dive into you a little bit. What is your, what was, what was it that brought you to, you know what, I really want to be, you know, I want to go into addiction help. Um, was it something that you kind of fell into? Like, I don't think that anyone, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that anyone in like, you know, 12 is like... What I want to do when I grow up is be an addiction counselor, you know. I but so so what is it that brought you, kind of to where you are now, and, and made you decide that this was something that was going to be your passion? Because when listen to you talk about it, you are so it is something that you're passionate about. Yeah, is that because of my rabbit holes? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm like the worst podcast cast. Okay. No, you're fine. No, I'm not answering. We live on Robert. No, Reddit. really. All right, seriously. All right. Um, no, I did. I fell into it, and it's actually the more I learned about addiction, the more I understood mm-hmm. why I was pulled into it. Um, but no, I uh, was in school and took a class where we learned a lot about the different drugs available. And uh, for some reason, it just interests me. And then again, looking back now, I understand um, I went into really understand my friends, the people around me. And, and I wasn't aware of that at the time. You know, I, I, no one goes in saying, I want to fix myself, you know, going into being a counselor. Some do, and they're really bad, and you want to stay away from them because they're going to do a lot of damage. Um, but no, I think at a very young age, I had limited resources available to me. So I would use what was available to me to cope. Right. And that's what addiction is. Um, and I am a lucky one and that I, through college and through other friends and family, was exposed to some healthier means of managing my emotions in my day-to-day. Um, so I think I just gravitated towards it because I really understood it. Right. Um, and I didn't have to dive into a full life of addiction, understand it. I was able to connect my own life experiences to work with people. It, it, it takes... Um, the thing with counseling is you, a really good counselor, is going to channel their own life experience, whatever it is, no matter how painful it is. And then I can tell you about it. Right? Right. Again, those are the really unhealthy ones because there are people who will do that. Um, but what they're going to do is they're going to channel it and use that to draw and create empathy, to connect an open dialogue. And I'm very good at that, I mm-hmm. found. So that's why I love it. Um, so I kind of fell into it. I mean, it's, it's and, and you know, clearly just the, the time that we've talked you know, about kind of what it is that you do and just even other things like it's it's very easy to empathize, you know, to empathize with you and see where you're coming from. So I think that um, it's, you I mean, other than just you're generally awesome. Um, but I have another question, you know, uh, when it comes to kind of addiction, you know, to kind of give, because I, I said earlier that I feel like we've all, everyone's been touched by addiction in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a little personal story. Sorry, Mom. Um, you know, I grew up with family members who were, you know, addicted to drugs. And um, kind of watching the, the their lives and kind of the things that, that they did was, like, for me, the biggest prevention for me. I was like, I ain't doing that mess. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You see how he act? Uh-uh. 
no, we're not even, that's not even going to work. We're not doing that. You know, and, and so as a, you know, someone comes into your office. Yeah. Um, and they say, you know, I think that my son or my daughter or my husband or my wife or you, you mainly work with the youth. So I'll say mm-hmm. son and daughter. Yeah. Um, I think that they're addicted to, you know, we're not going to go so far as to say that crack cocaine, but, you know, we think that they're, they're you know, maybe they're addicted to Molly um, or something like that. And, you know, what is it that your, what are your first steps? What are the first things that you do as, uh, you know, to, to A, to assess the situation mm-hmm. and figure out, okay, how deep is this? Is this like, is it like a parent overreacting or is there an actual issue? So more times than not, and again, I'm working in the uh, most recently medical detox and right. inpatient center. So by the time they've gotten to me, the problem is so out of control, it's life-threatening. Right. And so it's not even a conversation. Um, well, no, you're, it is an assessment of damages at that point, right? Like the car accident has happened. How severe is it? Right. And that's so I'm assessing for overdoses. I'm assessing for the current living situation. I'm assessing for the finances available to them. Um, I'm harm reduction planning. And that's what, that's what we're doing in those scenarios. In outpatient, where you'll see more of the inquisitive, right, um, parent or family member or loved one saying, I don't know if this is a problem. The first thing I say is uh, walk me through what you're seeing that leads you to believe this is a problem. And when is our next session with your loved one? Okay. Right, because that's that, and that's something that um, if somebody out here is listening and trying to figure out how to approach this, the very best thing you can do is have the person in the room. Um, a lot of times we separate care, and it's families, and then it's the addict. And what you're doing by bringing your raising your concerns and then doing it with the loved one in the room is you're giving the counselor ammunition. Right, they're going to hear things that you might never pick up on. I can't tell you how many times a mom has said, in, in the midst of voicing one concern, I hear another layer that brings a whole other concern to me. Right, when she right. says, "You, I, I'm worried because he's sleeping all day. You know, all he does is sleep. So I know he's out all night using drugs, and all he does is sleep. Well, I hear possible clinical depression there. Right, right. And so we're listening on all of these different levels. So ammunition was the wrong word, but you're you're really giving observations okay. I always tell parents observe observe and report very non-judgmentally right if you know your partner comes home and he's like Jason's moods all over the map he's unpredictable I know this is a little bit awkward that's kind of Jason on the you are <laughs> but if he's just observing and reporting to me um, and then we're opening dialogue it's when they walk in the room and they go I can't deal with him anymore right. he's awful um, that's that's when we run into issues. So first conversation is, what are your observations? Second one is, let's bring them in. Because even if there isn't a problem in terms of addiction, you're seeing things that are raising concern. Right. So there may be other underlying So what if there's issues. a mental health issue right. yeah. or a depression issue? Or, yeah. Or what if it's just, you guys need to communicate better, and so let me get you a counselor who, can, who deals with families so you guys can learn to communicate to each other what your needs are and what yes. your wants are and what your expectations are. Yes. And if it's, a, it's always a two-sided conversation. Right. So it's mom's going to talk about what she's seeing, feeling, and experiencing, and then you're going to have the opportunity to share your side of this. And that's always a great way to go about it because then you're empowering the person. It's, it's, it's a collaborative discussion 
So. Okay. Um, speaking of, uh, and 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 not to touch too much, I know that that mental health isn't necessarily your field. Yeah. Um, but I kind of want to talk about the kind of the correlation between mental health and um, addiction because we mm-hmm. tend to have uh, this. You know, be it right or wrong. I'm. You know, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. This is why I'm asking. But an idea that when someone is uh, does suffer, have you know, face addiction, it's because uh, there is some other mental, you know, mental health issue that is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as like, do you think that that's a thing that uh, you know is valid? Do you think that like you can that that, that that addiction itself can exist without some sort of other underlying mental health issues? Boy, that's a loaded question. Uh, no, no, that's it's a very good question. It's a very relevant question. Um, not one that anyone can answer yes or no to. Mm-hmm. Um, we do find that the two absolutely coincide. And um, we also see high rates. So you see high rates of mental health along with addiction. You also see high rates of um, highly intelligent people. Right. That that absolutely research shows us time and time again. High IQ goes hand in hand with intelli- or with addiction. Um, so two separate things there. But um, when we're looking at correlational data, you know, we're not saying one feeds the other, but we're absolutely saying where where's the overlap. Right. And so I guess the best way to answer your question, the most universal approach would be looking at addiction as a maladaptive coping response. And the simplest form of that is people are going to do what they need to do to feel better and get through their day to day. And so whether that's somebody coping with a trauma, sexual, physical in nature, uh, they might find themselves using a substance to to self-regulate. Right. We might see somebody with an anxiety disorder doing the same thing, with depression doing the same thing. So if you look at addiction as a maladaptive coping response, you'll absolutely understand why people who struggle with a mental health disorder are then going to find that thing that makes them feel better instantly. And again, that's a really empathetic way to look at this is just somebody trying to survive in this world and they're using what they have available to them and when we give them alternatives they're more likely to utilize them and when we teach them how to utilize them now they know it's available and now we teach them how to use it again they're more likely to do that um so does that answer your question i think that's a much better framework than looking at statistics and all of that yeah no look at it like you killed it it is what (laughs) i was like well damn she's too smart for this room well and i think (laughs) i think a lot of people forget like what do you use every day like i use chocolate right like very much so and as soon as you said that i was like wow i can totally connect with somebody there because whenever i'm having a bad day the first thing i every day every time at the office something where's my chocolate where's my chocolate because that's how i cope and it's not necessarily a healthy coping mechanism i mean they found sugar is terrible for you too much chocolate is terrible makes you know yeah but we don't look at it like well at least i'm not going in the bathroom and shooting up heroin you know what i mean like it's but i feel like Anybody can empathize when you look at yes. it that way because you can, you know, I know it's, uh, a friend of mine in college had a Pepsi every morning. Yeah. It's what she used to wake up. Mm-hmm. I have coffee every morning. You know, we can yeah. all look at something that we use and then say and then transfer it to, to somebody someone. to have some empathy and to, f- to put ourselves in their shoes and to be able to reach out and connect so we can help. Absolutely. Yeah, and I like <laughs> that you said, you know, looking at healthy versus unhealthy. 
that's the best way to look at when we're talking about coping skills and helping somebody who's battling addiction. Uh, you want to look at effective and ineffective. Right. Right. And like you said, I use video games. And when we look in terms of effective, we're going to look at, well, does your playing video games disrupt your daily life? Does it disrupt your goals? Does it get in the way of your relationship? We're going to screen that similar to the way we would addiction. Right. And so effective versus ineffective. And we do judge. We do that un unintentionally. Like you said, I don't look at chocolate and say, well, I'm not shooting up in the bathroom. People do. Mm -hmm. People do. And that's why we have these conversations where you can connect to those spots of empathy and say, I'm really not that different. Right. One of my favorite um, bosses very early on in my career said the only difference between you and the residents who are living in this um, treatment facility for four to six months. Only difference is you get in your car and go home at night. And don't ever forget that you are a few decisions away from ending up right where it's they are. There by the grace of God go I. Yeah. You know, and it's there's a couple of things that you that, that you said that I wanna I wanna kinda touch on. Um, well one of them is this the, the, the correlation between high IQ and mm -hmm. addiction. Because I to me I think that is and I think what I think is the what I think that's so fascinating is, you know, when we talk about and the stereotypes that we have for people who you know are you know are addicts and whatever that addict you know and, and when we talk about addicts and use the word addiction we talk about drug and alcohol addiction right you know we look at them and we look at their the, this this the stereotype is that they are low IQ or mm -hmm. that they're not very intelligent and that they've done you know this is their way of um, you know, dealing with their, you know, the, not being able to make it in the world. Or because they have a low IQ, then right. they make these bad decisions. Bad decisions. So yes. I couldn't possibly end up there because I am very smart and my mother told me and my teachers told me. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And where, where, you know, based on what you just said in some of the, my own research, it seems what science is saying is that is not, that is absolutely not the case. Yeah. A lot of, you know, the people who are, who, who are addicts and, and, you know, and when you think about this and kind of, and, and I, an insidious is not the word I'm looking for. Way they do you you in order for you to hide addiction mm -hmm. and do the some of the the, you know, the 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 destructive things that that are done you know especially when you know we we look at some of the the things that like they do to families and this there's this the deception and and all that you have to be you know have high intelligence because yeah. you know if you a dummy <laughs> you're not hiding anything not hiding from anything. anybody ah. Personally, could be no, uh, can be a drug addict, cause I don't know how to hide stuff. I would be like, yeah, girl, well, I'm high. <laughs> you know, it's you'd be like, look at him, just out here high and dumb. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, you know, there has there there's a level of, you know, of of intelligence that that, that is, you know, that's there. And I think is ingrained in that, and I think that a lot of it comes from. You know, and this is my own opinion. You yeah, stop yeah, me if you yeah. feel like I'm like you're like that's wrong. But yeah. uh, I think where a lot of you know the, the the addict behavior comes from is because these you know these are individuals who are so smart, mm -hmm. you know, and that they they have such high intelligence. They're bored. Yeah. And so it's like you know, this, you know especially when we're talking young people, you know, they're not challenged enough because you know school kind of goes for lowest common denominator. Right. So you're sitting in school and you're like. I understand this, you know, in a way that, and I'm like, yeah. I don't, you. you know, this is, oh, I'm bored. I don't have, you know, I'm not being challenged. I'm not being, I'm not interested in what's happening. So, you know, then their grades or whatever, you know, become 
they are affected, and then yeah. it becomes... That's for me. Oh, and then it becomes a, you know, oh, well, then there's pressure, there's added pressure because he goes far from parents or someone that you're, so then it starts to cope. Then yeah. you have to start finding Well, and then once they get high mechanism. school, everybody says, oh, you're dumb. Right. Well, no, I was just bored and my grades went to hell because I started using, but nobody knows I'm using, so now you just think I'm stupid and out of it. Right. Yeah, you know, and I, I find that interesting. And, and I think in a lot of ways, and and, and, and you can speak on this yeah. as well, I think that as when when those signs are first being seen, especially, you know, parents always have this idea that until their child is, is no longer perfect, their child is perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, there, there can be signs that are shown, you know, early on where you could maybe kind of head this thing off at the past, but you don't want to believe. And I don't have no kids, so I don't know. <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, I feel like the idea is I don't want to believe that my, you know, that my child could be using drugs because the mindset and the, 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 the idea of what, what a, you know, a person who is an addict yeah. is does not fit what I want my, you know, the role for my child. Yeah. And. Or know. the stereotype of an addict that I have in my head. Right. Because yeah. I've never been introduced to any of this. Is not anything that I see in my child. They're an athlete. They're high right. functioning. They're, you know, going to school. They're going to all their clubs things. They're doing all this stuff. And then, you know, six months later, they've OD'd in the bathroom and you had no idea they were even shooting heroin. And you're like, what What happened? Because we don't give ourselves the space to see other communities mm-hmm. and to see other people to teach us what's possible i mean not just the good but the bad we need to know what's possible to go this way when you have kids so you can head it off at the pass yeah but i think a lot of us put blinders on not that i have children but i have nephews and things but we put blinders on so we can pretend that they are always the perfect little child that we had instead of parenting and training and rearing them to go off into the real world well and you guys are not off base with that at all uh, Psychology Today actually did an uh, expert. Or, Look at the fact getting sources and stuff. Uh, no, it was really yes. great. So smart. It was a really great article. No, they did um, a article on um, parents, and the study showed parents see their children as more attractive than they actually are. <laughs> taller, <laughs> taller than they actually are. They, they see their children two or three inches taller than their height. I mean, that is a measurable, right? Attractiveness is going to be, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Height, right? I, I can measure that. You're going to be the they, same height all the time. Yes. <laughs> and they do. And it's because we want to see the best in our kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that's not a bad thing. And, and that's the thing when we're talking about this kind of stuff. It, it's not always, you know... Uh, you're coming from bad places. Now, again, we do, on, we do see a lot of pressure put onto our young people to succeed and perform. Um, and you did touch on that. Uh, that absolutely can be extremely damaging. We know that just as we need our a reprieve at the end of the work week, the end of the day, that they're gonna seek that as well. And if they don't have a safe place to say, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overworked, I'm exhausted, uh, they're going to find ways. And you touched on you know, maybe being a bad addict yourself if you ever went down that road because you wouldn't be smart enough. The thing is when you're forced to survive, you do things you would never do. Right. Right. And that's why when we're talking about addiction, and again, looking at it as a maladaptive coping response, it's survival. Right. It is, if you think, uh, just go straight Maslow's hierarchy of needs, our basic, basic needs. So smart. 
I know. Go it's ahead. it's really well. It's really a pop psychology from my freshman year. Right, okay. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is very well bottom tier physical surviving. Yeah. Yes, and if you think about somebody who I'll just go opiate addicts because that's traditionally who I work with, they cannot get through the day without using because they're physically Ill. unable to do so right yes so everything they do every action is about physically feeling better and getting through the day and you want to move outside of that and just psychologically feeling better you're working with a young lady with trauma who's just reliving a physical trauma every moment of every day she's just trying to survive she's trying to stop those thoughts to be present and make connections and make relationships so it really is dispelling the myth that they're these horrible behaving human beings they're human beings trying to survive on this earth right is just as we do and um going back to that uh high iq yeah they're just trying to survive and make connections right. I, I mean I, I talk to people all the time who just they're operating at a level that half of the room isn't, and so they have no idea how to connect, and they're lonely. Right. They're depressed. Or, like you said, they're bored. Or they're trying to stop their ticking brain. Right. right? Telling somebody with a high IQ to relax. It doesn't happen. Different ball game. And then the other thing I really love that you touched on, how we can dismiss people who we think are lower functioning. And if we're unpacking packaging addiction at its core i want you guys to understand addiction doesn't stop with a using person right right we see that it stems generations so grandpa was an alcoholic mom said i'm never touching that because i grew up with my abusive father her son may carry some of the traits that grandpa carried because it's behavioral based so maybe right. everyone walked on eggshells around grandma or grandpa well everyone walks around eggshells around mom because she never learned how to function in the world right. without alcohol she just didn't use it so now he's predisposed psychologically through this well, behavior not only is he predisposed psychologically but he's never seen someone and, and, and this is never been in a situation where he's seen someone use alcohol responsibly or um <laughs> uh and and what i mean by that is is so you know to use your idea of the alcoholic grandfather and then so the mom is like i don't you know, I'm never. I'm just never going to use it. Yeah. They have two. Those that is two different viewpoints or two different like kind of windows of how to view alcohol. You know, and yeah. You know, neither of them is. I'm not gonna say neither of them is healthy. Not because the person who doesn't use alcohol doesn't use it because they don't want to, but they don't use it because they're afraid of it. Right, and well, and what's unhealthy, right? If, right, and that's what. Looking at stemming generations, and I didn't mean predisposed uh, biologically. Some people believe in that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a biopsychosocial model, right? Biology, psychology, and sociology, which means right. I believe everything. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's all connected. It's all, well, and if, it, if you connect to it, right, when it comes to understanding addiction, it's about what you can wrap your mind around. So I always throw a million theories out there and let people connect to whatever they can relate to. Right. Um, but so when we're talking about just the psychology of being in a home with an addict, so grandpa is actively using alcohol, what comes with that is um, a simple example, command language. You sit down, shut up, behave. Right. And what we're doing is we're stunting someone's ability to communicate, to articulate thoughts, understanding, right? You know, I need you to quiet down because it's late and dad's sleeping. Right. So you're going to see the brain make connections through teaching that way. And in an alcoholic household, you don't get that. 
So not all the time, right? So then mom now has this underdeveloped communication pattern. So her son bears the weight of that because she's teaching the way she was taught. So now he doesn't know how to articulate thoughts and feelings. And where does he go to take care of himself? Because he was never taught to take care of himself by saying, I had a bad day today. And that's what I mean by it transcends. And again, we carry this idea that lower functioning people aren't smart. If you're raised in a home where it's command language, you could be a spitfire. You just don't just know, don't know how it, to articulate it. Right. You, you weren't taught. Well, and, and kind of where, where I was going with, with using you know, your, your example is, say you have someone, say you're in a family again with someone who was, an, you know, the grandfather was an alcoholic, so yeah. therefore the mom didn't drink. Well, now you have these two different views and these two different kind of visions of, of, of alcohol, and it becomes an all or nothing situation. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, as a now as a child, you're at, you know, you happen to be at a party, you know, and someone offers you alcohol and, you know, it then become then then that's when because you've never seen, you know, someone in the family use it responsibly. Yeah. You know, and then there's that pressure from, you know, everyone around you to drink. You then say, okay, well, if I'm going to drink. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go whole, whole, whole hog, yeah, and you know, and then that that's that's when you know you're binge drinking because you don't know that you can have one or two drinks and have a yeah. good, you know, and and have fun and it not be an issue. I mean, if you're under the age of twenty one, you know, like, we're not even getting into that because none of my business. But well, it's no, that's a very um, European model. Right. right. That's we hear that a lot um, about comparisons to U- the United States and how we view alcohol and consume it, and there is no moderation. Whereas right. it's introduced at a younger age in Europe, and it, it's not the introduction; it's it's how it is introduced, and that's what you're saying. Right. How it's being utilized, and if we're not teaching people to utilize it responsible, responsibly, they're left to their own devices. And um, I always talk about the adult table. Right? Like, that's what we had at our house. Yeah. We had an adult table. And guess what was at the adult table? That's what alcohol was. Alcohol. So what do you, what's the connection you make? As an adult, you drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. And the damage that can be done with that, um, it's pretty severe. Because um, you're teaching people one, per, you know, one way of living. We had um, a period of time where we had young men coming out of college and going to their work functions and just crashing and burning because they didn't know how to drink responsibly right and so they'd go out to their first work outing and binge and make really bad decisions and lose their jobs and we had young men who did not know how to enter the workforce because right. they had no conception. no idea that there was an idea that you can and, and it's it's not and, a frat party right. well, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah and they didn't know it's this is a business <laughs> meeting what are you well, doing and, like, and in the field that i'm in now we you know you know i just got back from you know from out of town on a work function and what amazed me, there were two things that, I, that that struck me as far as alcohol consumption was concerned. It was, you know, A, the amount mm-hmm. and the frequency in which, you know, the people, you know, drank. And it was, you know, outside of work, after hours, blah, blah, blah. You know, no one drank, at, you know, on the clock, essentially. But it was like, wow, these people drink a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, you know, it was... Like that, it was no big, like no big deal. Everybody's just like, and it was, like to me, I'm looking at it like I've had two drinks and I'm done. You know what I mean? Like yeah. because I have to get up in the morning and be a responsible and you know grown adult. You know where like I'm going. I know there were people who started way before I did. 
you know, because I went back to the hotel room and took a nap. (laughs) (laughs) And I look at society that way because I feel like we're really missing opportunities to teach people. Like um, I had a person show up for an interview for a job in a bikini top, Mm. a bolero jean jacket, and short so short I could see her butt cheeks she sounds like my kind of woman <laughs> you know she showed up for and then she was very upset and couldn't understand why she didn't get the job and I I feel like <clears throat> for some reason in our society we the more the, the further degenerations get along they just assume that these children know things right so they just stop teaching yeah you just because you know and I know you don't show up for a job interview that way but nobody told her, hey, when you go for a job interview, you can't dress like you're going to the club with your friends. Right. Because to her, that was dressing up. So she didn't see anything wrong with that. Right. Well, and I also think that there's a, there's, you know, there's Excuse a. Me, I'm so sorry. And this is kind of getting us off topic, going to get us off topic. But, you know, sure. I think that as, you know, we are now of a certain age um, where, you know, we're, we look at the younger generation and like, what, you know, what happened to y'all? And it's like, we're what happened to y'all, you know? And, and what I mean by that is, you know, there's a saying that my, my parents would say that each generation is wiser but weaker. Um, and that means that we, each generation knows more than the previous generation about the way the world works, but we are less likely to teach the other, the other person. Because like you said, we just assume that people know it. You know, we assume that, you know, if we learned it, then clearly someone's teaching you guys it too, not realizing that we're the ones that's supposed to be teaching you. So I have very strong opinions on this. Let's now. do this. Go for no, it. No, well, because if you, for me, there's a gap in knowing what to teach based on generations. So we right now, we know, we know millennials have no idea how to make genuine human connections. Right. And we know that that's part of the the electronic age that we live in. So one of the biggest tools they have available where we say you should succeed because you have this tool available. You have more knowledge at your fingertips than any other generation before you. There's a commercial out, right? Um, I believe it's common, and he says that. You Mm -hmm. have more information available at your fingertips than any other generation. That does not mean that they know how to use it. Right. And again, the struggles are going to be different. And so if we look at each generation and try and compare struggles, we're just minimizing what that person's going through. Right. And so if we can just look at an open dialogue and ask people, we'll get a better understanding. And um, Simon Seek, um, he does a lot of stuff on millennials and the psychology behind their impending sense of failure and the high rates of depression that we see with that generation. And um, no, you know, can I swear? Yeah. yeah. Like no shit that they're reaching out for drugs and alcohol to make connections. Right. They're just Way trying. Bring it back. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's honestly, um, for me, I, I have such a passion for that population and um, just that, that understanding from generation to generation. Every generation has their struggles, right? And um, that, that's just the way of the world. And it's just understanding what each one dealt with. You know, um, student loan debt, right? Ooh, we know that's we know that's huge. We know debt. that's huge, right? But if I if, if, if somebody <laughs> if somebody from Vietnam heard me complaining about that, who wins? 
Right. <laughs> the reality is we all have our struggles. The AIDS epidemic, right? We saw a generation dealing with that without knowing what they were dealing with. Right. It wasn't until we look back and then we go, oh my gosh. You know, and then we offer counseling, and then we offer services, and then and, and it's reactive. We're such we're a reactive pre-o-act, system. Pro-active. We're not. We're not. Pre-o-active. Pre-o-active. I'm making my own words. <laughs> <laughs> um, so well, I wanted to ask, um, if you don't mind, I no, wanted to ahead. ask you, Abby. Yeah. So I know you really were touched by the opiate epidemic. Um, when did you start seeing a rise? What population because I feel like just from what I've read and what I've seen it's a lot of kids in sports which I think especially parents out here hopefully if you're listening you'll know because we have like the soccer field of all soccer fields and the baseball diamond of all baseball diamonds and these kids are going 24 7 in all these sports to get these scholarships and I feel like it kind of starts with a small injury and then, you know, Johnny's still got to play for the game for the coach so he can get the scholarship. So let's give him a little something to get him through the game. And then that's kind of where it spirals and people just don't make those connections. And I feel like that's kind of important. So there are cases that speak to that. Absolutely. That's not um, the, the core of the epidemic. Okay. But no, because what, you, what you're touching on is we see um, it's going back to what we were talking about with the pressure and that need to succeed and the coping skills. So what we're doing with athletes, if you have an athlete and he loses his ability to perform, he's lost his biggest coping skill, right? And yes, we know opiates uh, very rapidly. Um, Somebody's physically addicted very rapidly to opiates. That's how they work. They heal, they, they deal with pain by shutting down your pain receptors. And your body needs pain receptors, so it grows more. So your tolerance goes up. So we see that very quickly. So if it's not regulated from the parents, it can quickly go out of control. But at its core, when the young men I deal with, it's um, the existential crises we all have. Who am I? What am I doing on this earth? What is my purpose? And it's because a sport was ripped away. Because uh-huh. that's all they had. That's all they knew. It's all they had. And again, it was yes, their identity. The, it was. Because at that age, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I, I was the nerd, the, the drama nerd. So if somebody had told me I couldn't do drama anymore, yes. what would I have done? Okay. And, but, but you do see the physical side of it. You know, yeah. I have had um, young men prescribed. Um, there's a great, Avi Israeli is um, a phenomenal human being. He's in New York. So you guys might not know him in Kansas but um, or Missouri. Um, it's fine. It's the same. <laughs> it's not the same, but it's fine. <laughs> um, again, it's Avi Israeli. He has a foundation called Save the Michaels. And his son, and he's very open about this, or I won't share this, um, was prescribed opiates for Crohn's addiction. Or not Crohn's addiction, for Crohn's, Crohn's disease. disease. Crohn's disease. Opiates for Crohn's. That is a oh. long-lasting disease you'll deal with yes. for your entire life. So to prescribe opiates for that, is that's insane. how uneducated our healthcare system was at the time. We're getting educated, and there's been a lot of healthcare reform in um, New York. A lot of um, that can be attributed to the work that Avi and his team is doing. Yeah. Um, but he, if you, that's really something that people want to learn more about medical communities and how they've really fed the addiction, um, the or the opiate epidemic. I absolutely saved the Michaels, Avi Israeli. And again, there was a New York Times piece um, where they talked about opiates. And again, this is 
back when they first came out where they just lied and yeah. said that they were not physically addictive despite yeah. having all the research, the research to say they were. Oh, yeah. That was a really great article. on And, and everyone they featured during their ad campaigns is dead. Because they were addicted to opiates. Yep. Oh. So um, I know we're we're getting low on time. We wanted to keep this one right about <laughs> yes, an hour. Um, no, we could talk about this for hours, but yeah, you no, know. and with Abby, absolutely because she's you know, so brilliant. And Was so there hopefully next time you'll come you'll come back at another time and you know jump on the show again and mm-hmm. we can continue the discussion. But um, I kind of wanted uh, two more things. Uh, first thing I wanted to 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 do you to do for us is say you are. Um, someone who is dealing with someone, you know, dealing is not the word I'm on. It's affected by someone with, yeah. you know, that that's coping with addiction. Um, again, sorry, mom. Um, you know, I had the person in my family who, not it wasn't my mom. Because <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying that it wasn't my mom. Um, the person that I had in my family, uh, like lived with lived with me for a while, mm. and you know, you know, he's no longer with us. God rest his soul. But um he was when he was sober and clean like best dude you'd ever meet like super sweet give you a shirt off his back but if he was high or he was you know not high and like not clean just you know an absolute terror yeah and i wish i had had someone when i was in you know my early 20s you know, even growing up that could tell me, okay, how do you, because especially as a child, you know, you see essentially Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Mm -hmm. and you love Dr. Jekyll, you know, but you hate Mr. Hyde. How do you handle that? How do you cope with, and, you know, as a child, how do you cope with someone with two distinct personalities like that because of addiction and be as an adult, um, what are some things that we can do, you know, because I, I, you know, we, we, when we had this conversation, you know, the other day, um, we can't pull someone else out of addiction, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the sooner we understand that, you know, as, as the people that are affected by it, you know, the sooner that person gets help, yeah. you know, because as long as we're continuing to pull them out, then we, you know, all we're doing is making it easier for them to slide back down. Yes. Um, so what are some things that we can, you know, I just, I'm gay through a lot at you, that's mm-hmm. what I do. Uh, but what are some things that, 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 you know, that we can do to, to, to cope and what are some actual things that we can do to help? Um, if, if anything, you know, or at least help ourselves. Right. That, well, and that's <laughs> what you can do. Uh, you get educated about the disease of addiction. Uh, and the more you understand that, the individual in your life can't control. They cannot control that. It's, it's it's a disease, right? Diabetes. We can't control it. We can definitely reduce its impact. Mm-hmm. I can't make it go away, though. I can eat healthy. I can monitor my blood sugar. I can do all these things to limit the impact. But it's never going to go away. Right. And so I, I like that framework because if you're looking at somebody who isn't doing anything to minimize the impact, then you want to set boundaries. Um Kids, I um, that's a whole different animal, um, and I say that because ki- kids grow and seek safety through consistency, and so when you have a volatile force and they can't predict what's going to happen 
next. They're on high alert all the time. And so actually we had, um, there's a, I can't remember the name of the person, but there's a researcher who talked about, um, we had kids with all of these anxiety disorders and, you know, um, ADHD was a big one. And what we were seeing when we actually got them into counseling was they were raised in homes with violence and addiction. And it's the, un, the instability and the, that lack of safety that keeps them chronically moving. And their mind has to move and move and move and move so they can't slow down. So kids, I, that's for me a passion project. They need to be removed from the home um, and they need to not be around that. Now when dad or uncle or aunt or sister or brother is stable, Sure, then they can come It around. wasn't my dad either, just a thought. Oh, sorry, sorry. I just mean in general, in right. general. Um, and I don't want nobody to be like, so your daddy was a head, and I don't want to do that. Well, and I don't want to offend anybody right. who's trying to... Reconciling a family when you're dealing with addiction is very difficult. And so I'm not saying remove the addict from the child. What I'm saying is the addict actively using has no reason to be around the child. Right. And in our, you know quest to reconcile and have empathy and you know create this sense of family we do a lot of damage unintentionally to children um consistency is key uh, so that's a whole different discussion when i read some research where that high alert mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me i'm so sorry guys i have a cold um essentially what you're doing is you're keeping the child in constant fight or flight mode yes. which keeps the adrenaline up which um, lowers development because they aren't able to relax and develop because they're constantly in survival mode. So that later on stems to a whole bunch of other issues. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a big, that, and again, I, I pretty unapologetic with that one. Um, but that for me, that's based on, and that's based on talking with individuals who've been in homes um, of that nature. So in terms of what we can do, it's, it's exactly what you're doing. Get educated get informed and really understand what you're dealing with and um, get into counseling. There's also self-help programs out there for family members, Al-Anon, Naranon. There's a ton of information on the internet. Um, so you don't have to, you do not have to um, go out uh, uh, and leave your home. I mean, a lot of people want to remain anonymous as they're seeking information and that you can totally do that in this day and age. Right. So that's that's for me. It's all about getting educated. Um. Well, awesome. Um, so huh, that was a that was a that was a that was a deep and good discussion. Well, I feel like I just went down way too many. No, <laughs> no, no. I feel like it was um, it was important. You know, I think yeah. that it's important, especially you know when we're dealing with kind of we're in the middle of an opioid crisis. Yeah. I mean, if our Cheeto Lord is even willing to talk about it to the point that he's able to talk about it, then, you know, obviously there's something because he don't like to admit to nothing. <laughs> no, so, and he put um, a young man, age of 23, and um, the head of his party to lead the charge against the opiate epidemic and got a lot of backlash and moved him out of that seat. Right. It's typically somebody in the position, I don't remember the title of the position, the, typically the person put in that position has 20... 25 years of medical experience. And this person did not have that. He was a very young man. Um, moved from an intern to the director of whatever the this was. Yeah. 
task force task or whatever. Force, yeah. yeah. So no, it, it really is about us getting informed. No, I don't foresee um, anything changing without us getting informed. And then people like Avi Israeli going out there and pushing for legislation and um, us just listening and empathizing and understanding and just really understanding we're not too we're not so different. Right. And when we can really look at where the common ground is, we can all grow together. And, and I guess and to answer your question about what we can do, give resources. You know, when you're taking away addiction, put something in place of that. Ask the questions. What What is it that use does for you? You know, well, it helps calm me down. Okay. So figure out what else calms you down. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's absolutely something you can do. Um, and then and, and push through the, well, it's fun. It's, it's more than that, you right. know, and push through that. So, and that can be done with counseling as well. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, that, uh, I was going to try to find something really fun and to, to talk to <laughs> say before we ended, but I really feel like this is you know, um, perfect the way that it is. Um, Abby, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, hopefully, we'll have you on again soon-ish. <laughs> um, where can people find you if they want to... You know, not necessarily if they want to, to, to say, you know, anything. <laughs> oh, so um, I actually um, will be doing my own podcast um, and my own blog. Um, on It's uh, supportingsobriety.org. And it's uh, Supporting Sobriety Recovery Network. And um, so this was really great for me to just realize I have a lot to say about this topic. <laughs> I knew I did, so I'm really sorry if I just jumped all over. No, I thought it was great. So, you know, guys, make sure you go check out her the website and her podcast. Um, supporting su- SupportingSobriety.org. I think that it's amazing. Um, what you're doing is awesome. Thank you. Um, I am proud to know you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Sarah Lynn, as always, it is a pleasure to have you on. I know we don't get to have you on very often, um, but your voice is one that is refreshing Mm. and new. Uh, It's been good. I didn't realize how smart I was. You are. (laughs) Uh, Don't forget to follow us on uh, Facebook at Casey Caffeine. Follow us on Twitter at Casey underscore Caffeine. Follow us on Instagram at Casey Caffeine. Um, Don't forget to give to the patron. Uh, or Patreon, sorry. Casey mm-hmm. uh, uh, Caffeine on there. Um, yeah, because we want to get some t-shirts and some things that we can get out to to you guys. Coffee mugs. Um, coffee mugs. So excited for coffee oh, mugs. Oh, yeah. We Great. saw some really kind of awesome coffee mug designs that come through. So if you guys give to the Patreon, we can give the, to you coffee mugs. So um, do that. And... <laughs> On that note, on behalf of all the people here in the room and our other co-hosts who could not be here today because they had other things going on in their lives, um, Todd and Gabe and Blue, uh, we wish you guys a good night. Have a good week and stay woke, folks.